You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week's podcast looks at shared decision-making. We convened a roundtable to look at the issues. In this podcast, we have an edited version of it, but the full discussion is available on bmj.com, split into three sections, each around 25 minutes. But before we get to that, I have with me Juliet Dobson, who's the blog editor here at the BMJ. Hello, Juliet. Hello. And you're going to talk about, um, we've had a busy week on the blogs, I gather, this week. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And you've highlighted a couple that you'd like to share with us today. Yes. The first blog that I wanted to highlight with you is by Ryuki Kasai. He's a professor at the Fukushima Medical University in Japan. And he he's already written one blog for us yes. um, in the immediate aftermath of the recent earthquake and tsunami. And he's written another update. Yes. How do, how do we get hold of him, Juliet? He's also on the BMJ Editorial Advisory Board. Oh, right. OK. So he said that um, the, the acute disaster period is over, but now it's been followed by a period of uncertainty, particularly in Fukushima, because, of course, that's where the nuclear plant is. Yes. Um, and there's a lot of confusion because the government and media have been giving people kind of confused messages about what they should and shouldn't do and about the various radiation risks. So the general public are unsure about whether they can drink water from the taps or mm. drink milk or whether the radiation has affected food, things like broccoli and spinach. Yes. So there's a kind of general air of uncertainty about what people can do. Yes. Um, and for him in particular, um, there's a sort of period of uncertainty at the university because the academic year in Japan starts in April and he's heard that quite a few um, college freshmen and registrars won't be coming to the university or the hospital because their families are so anxious about them going to Fukushima and the mm. surrounding area. So they don't know if they'll be coming or not. Yes, it's great to get these perspectives from on the ground, isn't it? Yes, it's actually an amazingly thoughtful and considered blog considering the chaos and the hardship that's there he's he also talks about the beauty of the mountains at the moment yes so even though the cold weather has been hampering the kind of tidy up from the earthquake he's saying but it's so beautiful then yes and there are cherry blossoms on the tree great well as as Juliet says that's the second blog that Ryuki's wrote for us and he also did a podcast with us a couple of weeks ago so you can find that at podcast.bmj.com we have other things about the earthquake too including a column from Tony Delamoth the BMJ deputy editor this week who talks about the challenge now is to learn as much as possible about the medical effects of radiation so you can see that on bmj.com so thank you for that Juliet now you've got another one for us I believe you want to highlight Yes, another blog from Richard Smith, one of our most frequent bloggers. Yes, he's very prolific, isn't he? And this one has um, been tweeted all over the place this week, so I thought it would be worth highlighting as well. And he's wondering whether PLOS One, which is a new type of journal, might change the way that journals work. Yes. Um, It's from the Public Library of Science, and it's worth mentioning he's also on the board of the Public Library of Science. Yes, uh, so, <laughs> so he, is. he is an advocate of it. Um, and it's similar to BMJ Open. Uh, the way it works is that they publish any scientific study where the conclusions are supported by the methods and results, but where the authors don't draw out excessive conclusions based on their research. So most things could can be published and editors don't, reject things based on whether they're original or important. Yes. Um, 
So does Richard find a sort of space still forum for traditional journals in this brave new world, Juliet? Well, not really. He's saying that authors currently stick with traditional journals because of the academic credit that comes with publishing in them, because of impact factors and so on. But with PLOS One, instead of using the impact factors, they have article metrics. Yes. So it's a different way of measuring the impact. And he's saying, actually, it's much better for authors to get their work out there and to have it published and then to use different ways of drawing attention to it. So tweeting about it, sending out the URL and making sure that the people that it's really relevant to get access to um, that article and that in that way they'll get credit for their work. Excellent. Um, Well, on article level metrics, it's something that we're looking at here at the BMJ to put in our articles at a a future date. It's a project that we've got ongoing here. And as Juliet said, there is a a journal called BMJ Open, which we've launched very, very recently, which is based on the PLOS model, which you can access at bmjopen.bmj.com. So that's all from Juliet today. Thank you, Juliet. Thank you. So now it's over to Duncan Jarvis, who's going to talk to us about shared decision-making. To mark the signing of the Salzburg Statement on Shared Decision-Making, the BMJ brought together 14 doctors, patients, academics and policymakers to discuss how to involve patients in decisions about their health. Chaired by Fiona Godley, they set out their thoughts on the subject. Shared decision-making is not a new idea. You'll almost certainly have heard of it if you're not actively doing it, to some extent, in your practice. But the move to formalise it into clinical guidance, make it integral to informed consent, and even to use it to lessen the cost of professional insurance, is gaining ground. We'll start with a bit of background, from Al Mali, Director for the Foundation for Informed Medical Decision Making in Dartmouth, Massachusetts. The foundation was established in 1989, after nearly a decade of research trying to understand Uh, practice variation. So the first shared decision-making program developed by my colleagues and I, Jack Winberg, and many others, was designed to diminish as much as possible the unwarranted variation and hold up the warranted variation, even honor it, because it's what makes care truly patient-centered. Give patients the care they need no less and want to know more. However, as I said, it's been a long time since we began down this road, and one shouldn't underestimate the cultural resistance to change among health professionals, among patients in the public, and among policymakers um, in order to see it really reach its potential. Glyn Elwin, you're leading a research group into shared decision-making in Cardiff. What's the evidence that it really improves the quality of care and, and can reduce overuse, underuse, and misuse of medical resources? The evidence is remarkably consistent, actually, that When you use these tools, it leads to a very good gain in knowledge on behalf of patients, so they become more informed. The second thing that consistently happens is they become better able to judge the likelihood of harms and benefits happening. It leads those patients then to have the concept of what we call decision quality, that their informed preference uh, is aligned with their knowledge. So somebody who doesn't really want something to happen picks the intention of the treatment that they really fits in with their preferences. And I think that's the kind of sweet spot of shared decision-making, if you like. Alf Collins, you're involved in the Health Foundation's programme where patients with long-term conditions are actually training doctors. Can you tell us a bit about that? The the, the programme's called Co-Creating Health. We've been running for um, four years now, and it's working across eight health communities in the UK, 
working with people with four different long-term conditions, diabetes, COPD, um, depression and long-term pain. And it's just incredibly powerful to see someone with a long-term condition training a clinician in how to speak with them to enable them to manage their own health. And what about the impact on the clinicians? How can you evaluate that? You know, um, we've evaluated that in terms of stories. We're we're just about now to go into a second phase of the programme where we're we're developing a tool to really understand whether it actually makes clinicians feel as though they've had a more productive conversation themselves. You know, we're a little way into that and I can't tell you more. But the stories we've had from clinicians are amazing. You know, this has transformed my practice. This has transformed the way I think about my work. This has transformed the way I think about the relations I have with people who live with long-term conditions. Transformative. The case for shared decision-making seems to be fairly clear. But, as everyone knows, the gulf between theory and pilot projects and actually getting it embedded within and central to everyday practice can be huge. Margaret McCartney is a GP in Glasgow who worries that the way the NHS is set up makes it particularly difficult. I mean, the Salzburg statement, I mean, there's nothing you could disagree in it. The, the idea that as a doctor I would try and sort of cajole or persuade or not inform is just abhorrent. You know, I mean, of course um, patients should be, you know, equally contributing towards a consultation and an, to, to have outcomes. I mean, there is absolutely no way that I would want my patient to be anything other than well-informed. The question is um, when it's appropriate and what best to do. Sometimes it's not appropriate to offer a huge range of choice if I think I have someone with meningitis or acute appendicitis, it's really not appropriate for me to spend half an hour with some decision aid trying to work out what best to do for them. The real place where we should be looking at proper informed decision making is not in patients who are sick, but in patients who are well. We do very badly in the NHS in terms of not giving people proper choice about things like, for example, cervical screening. It's impossible to opt out. You'll get red letters if you dare to say that you'd rather not have this. Thank you. Mammography, which is still not offered as a choice, is offered very much as something that you should have for the good of your health and really that it's not a terribly good idea to dissent from that. Um, Cholesterols and blood pressures seem to be automatic indicators that you're entering into your middle age rather than something that you should actually sit down and make a decision about. So um, I I absolutely think that people should have good information about decisions they make. How could I possibly argue otherwise? But the real question is what we do for people who are essentially well. We make them into patients. We cause a huge amount of chaos in their lives we add to their anxiety, we add to their concern about themselves without actually making them into a proper participant, an equal, intelligent, capable person able to make a decision for themselves. Margaret McCartney there. The way the government currently encourages doctors to change the way they behave is through incentives. Quoff in the UK has financially rewarded doctors for meeting targets on things like coronary heart disease, heart failure and hypertension. And it's worked. To get shared decision-making into practice, we need to incentivise it. And to incentivise it, we need to measure it properly. Al Mully on how they do that in Dartmouth. The key, I think, to to really determining what are the best methods for doing shared decision-making is to put much more emphasis on measuring the quality of decisions. And how does one do that? How does one measure the quality of a decision? Well, you, you, you work really hard to understand what, what is, is called by some psychologists the gist of the choice, the gist of the decision. Um, what is the trade-off that's, that's most important for most people? 
you then find ways to determine whether or not a particular patient understands the gist. Uh, most people who receive revascularization for coronary disease, whether it's surgery or whether it's denting through an intravascular procedure, fully believe that they're reducing their risk of having a heart attack or sudden death. For the vast majority of people, there is no reduction in risk of sudden death. And for everyone, there's no reduction in risk of heart attack. That's an example of making a fateful decision in the face of easily avoidable ignorance. So you could measure how often are these decisions being made in the face of avoidable ignorance in this setting. You could also ask people how they feel about making a trade-off between their physical function, limited by angina, and putting their cognitive function at risk and then look at whether or not that population of patients treated in this setting shows that there's a relationship between what they say they care about and the treatment they get. If we consistently measured the quality of decisions, and if clinicians were rewarded for achieving high quality in competing to do so, we would see a dramatic change. Obviously, this all hinges on everyone understanding the science, the relative benefits and risks of different procedures. You might expect that many doctors would have that down, but not an experience of Gert Gigerenza from the Max Planck Institute for Human Behaviour. He's worked with many physicians over the years and find that they often don't, not entirely their own fault, if journals, like the BMJ, present benefits and risks in a way which can confuse. Here's one example. Assume there's a treatment which increases the chance of dying from one cancer by one in two in hundred and decreases the chance of uh, dying from a second cancer. That's the benefit from two to one in hundred. So how it's presented is the following way. Uh, one would write that doing this treatment decreases the chance of dying from the second cancer by 50%. Although there is a, a potential harm, but it's only one in hundred. We call this mismatched framing. You present the benefits in big numbers, called relative risks, and the harms in small numbers, called absolute risks. And this happens, according to studies, in the top medical journals in one out of every three uh, uh, articles where benefits and harms are both represented. It's not just about getting people the numbers. It's about fostering a sense of healthy skepticism to encourage people to ask questions, you know, why should I believe what you're telling me? You know, having some sense that um, things, there is complexity, there is un un uncertainty. But um, <clears throat> the other thing I think that's really important, though, is to, um, to make things a little less daunting is that we can draw on skills that people have. I mean, people, doctors, journalists, editors, people are pretty smart. <laughs> and... Um, they, they do things all the time in their daily lives, using numbers, manipulating numbers, no different than the kinds of numbers we're talking about when we're, when we're thinking about health risks. So, for example, we can make things complicated. We can talk about relative risk reductions and odds ratios and number needed to and all this stuff. We could talk about sales or savings, um, you know, or, um, things that people are, are familiar with and, and they're able to deal with all the time. So one of the things that we try to do with patients and with journalists and with other communicators is just to try to um, encourage people to use transparent numbers and to try to uh, use analogies to things that people are familiar with. Steve Wulishin, who works with Lisa Schwartz on helping everyone, from research editors to patients, understand and present risk well. So, 
As a profession, we're beginning to understand the barriers to shared decision-making and have an idea of how to overcome them. But all this can't come from the side of doctors. Patients need to be involved and motivated too. My old professor in Glasgow used to talk about la maladie du petit papier, you know, a little bit of paper comes out of the pocket. But it's now la maladie du grand printout. You know, the patients are coming in with a grand printout. So we have to compete with the internet. You can't control the internet. So citizens, the internet and knowledge. That was one we, we think we're in important jobs, but we're not in control any longer. We have to negotiate in a new way. Muir Gray, Chair of the Information Standard. Dave de Broncart, e-patient Dave, is perhaps an atypical case, but he's leading the vanguard of informed patients and encourages others to take the lead on their own health. So I've been wondering what will happen in our culture that will cause the culture of receiving care to shift. And I suspect it's going to be what I've come to call the mama lion, right? The, the mother who is caring for a child and who will stop at nothing to ask, wait a minute, what else could this be? What other treatment options are there? And so on. Because if we can shift... Uh, who, uh, if we can shift to having that kind of thinking and realize it can also apply to ourselves as patients, uh, that will change the culture. I wonder whether the endless time that patients spend sitting in waiting rooms before they get to see the doctor couldn't be better spent. And I thought Muir's suggestion of getting them to do prep and homework is an absolutely splendid one. And I would love to be handed um, a piece of paper that said, um, what do you understand about your disease? Do you think the treatment you've had to date has made any difference? What are you worried about? Share your concerns with us. Put them down. How do you think the doctor can help you to address these concerns? You know, where do we go from here? And I think that um, we should take that very seriously to get the patient, to encourage the patient not to read, um, you know, the trashy magazines or last week's um, Country Life, but actually to get them to do some prep, which will really galvanise the doctor into understanding where that patient is coming from and what matters to them. Tessa Richards there, analysis editor of the BMJ and a patient too. We've talked a great deal about empowering patients to make decisions about their health. But, of course, some patients may not want to. Illness can terrify, and sometimes people just want reassurance. Sue Siebland, Research Director of the Health Experiences Research Group at the University of Oxford, has talked to many patients about receiving a diagnosis and undergoing treatment. Often there is a best practice, and in those cases, patients should receive it. But I'll leave you with her thoughts on shared decision-making in situations where the answer is less clear-cut. I think that when I said that often when patients go to see the doctor, what they want to hear is that it's absolutely clear that there is a, an effective treatment. I'm not saying that therefore we have to pretend there is an effective treatment, but it's a way of understanding why there is so often a misunderstanding in the consultation, because what the patient wants to hear, it isn't possible to hear, but then the doctor has to find a way of explaining that there isn't, there isn't certainty. And it, I think it's one of the reasons why consultations often go awry. Um, I'm not saying that we need to pretend it's there when it isn't. And as I said, if that summary caught your attention, the full thing is available on the podcast site, bmj.com forward slash podcasts. We'll be back next week looking at prostate cancer screening. Is it worth it? Join us then. Bye for now. 
For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.